Book One, Sections Ten through Thirteen of Politics by Aristotle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Doug Wetzel. Politics by Aristotle. Translated by Benjamin Joet. Book One, Sections Ten through Thirteen. Section 10. And we have found the answer to our original question, whether the art of getting wealth is the business of the manager of a household and of the statesman, or not their business. Videla said that wealth is presupposed by them. For as political science does not make men, but takes them from nature and uses them, so too nature provides them with earth or sea or the like as a source of food. At this stage begins the duty of the manager of a household, who has to order the things which nature supplies. He may be compared to the weaver, who has not to make but to use wool, and to know, too, what sort of wool is good and serviceable, or bad and unserviceable. Were this otherwise, it would be difficult to see why the art of getting wealth is a part of the management of a household, and the art of medicine not. For surely the members of a household must have health, just as they must have life or any other necessity. The answer is that, as from one point of view, the master of the house and the ruler of the state have to consider about health, from another point of view not they, but the physician. So in one way the art of household management, in another way the subordinate art, has to consider about wealth. But strictly speaking, as I have already said, the means of life must be provided beforehand by nature, for the business of nature is to furnish food to that which is born, and the food of the offspring is always what remains over of that from which it is produced. Wherefore, the art of getting wealth out of fruits and animals is always natural. There are two sorts of wealth-getting, as I have said. One is a part of household management, the other is retail trade the former necessary and honorable, while that which consists in exchange is justly censured, for it is unnatural, and a mode by which men gain from one another. The most hated sort, and with the greatest reason, is usury, which makes a gain out of money itself, and not from the natural object of it. For money was intended to be used in exchange, but not to increase at interest, and this term interest, which means the birth of money from money is applied to the breeding of money because the offspring resembles the parent. Wherefore, of all modes of getting wealth, this is the most unnatural. Section 11. Enough has been said about the theory of wealth getting. We will now proceed to the practical part. The discussion of such matters is not unworthy of philosophy, but to be engaged in them practically is illiberal and irksome. The useful parts of wealth-getting are, first, the knowledge of livestock, which are most profitable and where and how, as, for example, what sort of horses or sheep or oxen or any other animals are most likely to give a return. A man ought to know which of these pay better than others, and which pay best in particular places, for some do better in one place and some in another. Secondly, husbandry, which may be either tillage or planting, and the keeping of bees and of fish or fowl or of any animals which may be useful to man. 
These are the divisions of the true or proper art of wealth getting income first. Of the other, which consists in exchange, the first and most important division is commerce, of which there are three kinds the provision of a ship, the conveyance of goods, exposure for sale. These again differing as they are safer or more profitable. The second is usury, the third, service for hire. Of this, one kind is employed in the mechanical arts, the other in unskilled and bodily labor. There is still a third sort of wealth getting intermediate between this and the first or natural mode, which is partly natural, but is also concerned with exchange. Videlicet, the industries that make their profit from the earth and from things growing from the earth, which, although they bear no fruit, are nevertheless profitable. For example, the cutting of timber and all mining. The art of mining, by which minerals are obtained, itself has many branches, for there are various kinds of things dug out of the earth. Of the several divisions of wealth-getting I now speak generally. A minute consideration of them might be useful in practice, but it would be tiresome to dwell upon them at greater length now. Those occupations are most truly arts in which there is the least element of chance. They are the meanest in which the body is most deteriorated the most servile in which there is the greatest use of the body, and the most illiberal in which there is the least need of excellence. Works have been written upon these subjects by various persons. For example, Cares the Perean and Apollodorus the Lemnian, who have treated of tillage and planting, while others have treated of other branches. Anyone who cares for such matters may refer to their writings. It would be well, also, to collect the scattered stories of the ways in which individuals have succeeded in amassing a fortune, for all this is useful to persons who value the art of getting wealth. There is the anecdote of Thales the Milesian and his financial device, which involves a principle of universal application, but is attributed to him on account of his reputation for wisdom. He was reproached for his poverty, which was supposed to show that philosophy was of no use. According to the story, he knew by his skill in the stars, while it was yet winter, that there would be a great harvest of olives in the coming year. So, having a little money, he gave deposits for the use of all the olive presses in Chios and Miletus, which he hired at a low price, because no one bid against him. When the harvest time came, and many were wanted all at once and of a sudden, he let them out at any rate which he pleased, and made a quantity of money. Thus, he showed the world that philosophers can easily be rich if they like, but that their ambition is of another sort. He is supposed to have given a striking proof of his wisdom, but, as I was saying, his device for getting wealth is of universal application and is nothing but the creation of a monopoly. It is an art often practiced by cities when they are want of money. They make a monopoly of provisions. There was a man of Sicily who, having money deposited with him, bought up all the iron from the iron mines. Afterwards, when the merchants came from their various markets to buy, he was the only seller, and without much increasing the price he gained two hundred percent, which, when Dionysius heard, he told him that he might take away his money, but that he must not remain at Syracuse, for he thought that the man had discovered a way of making money which was injurious to his own interests. He made the same discovery as Thales. They both contrived to create a monopoly for themselves. And statesmen as well ought to know these things for a state is often as much in want of money and of such devices for obtaining it as a household, or even more so. Hence, some public men 
devote themselves entirely to finance. Section 12 Of household management we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves, which has been discussed already, another of a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and father, we saw, rules over wife and children, both free, but the rule differs, the rule over his children being a royal, over his wife a constitutional rule. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is, by nature, fitter for command than the female, just as the elder and full-grown is superior to the younger and more immature. But in most constitutional states, the citizens rule and are ruled by turns, for the idea of a constitutional state implies that the natures of the citizens are equal and do not differ at all. Nevertheless, when one rules and the other is ruled, we endeavor to create a difference of outward forms and names and titles of respect, which may be illustrated by the saying of Amasis about his footpan. The relation of the male to the female is of this kind, but there the inequality is permanent. The rule of a father over his children is royal, for he rules by virtue both of love and of the respect due to age, exercising a kind of royal power, and therefore Homer has appropriately called Zeus father of gods and men, because he is the king of all of them. For a king is the natural superior of his subjects, but he should be of the same kin or kind with them, and such is the relation of elder and younger, of father and son. Section 13. Thus, it is clear that household management attends more to men than to the acquisition of inanimate things, and to human excellence more than to the excellence of property, which we call wealth, and to the virtue of freemen more than to the virtue of slaves. A question may indeed be raised, whether there is any excellence at all in a slave beyond and higher than merely instrumental and ministerial qualities whether he can have the virtues of temperance, courage, justice, and the like, or whether slaves possess only bodily and ministerial qualities. In whichever way we answer the question, a difficulty arises, for if they have virtue, in what will they differ from freemen? On the other hand, since they are men and share in rational principle, it seems absurd to say that they have no virtue. A similar question may be raised about women and children, whether they too have virtues. Ought a woman to be temperate and brave and just, and is a child to be called temperate and intemperate, or not? So, in general, we may ask about the natural ruler and the natural subject, whether they have the same or different virtues. For if a noble nature is equally required in both, why should one of them always rule and the other always be ruled? Nor can we say that this is a question of degree, for the difference between ruler and subject is a difference of kind, which the difference of more and less never is. Yet how strange is the supposition that the one ought and that the other ought not to have virtue. For if the ruler is intemperate and unjust, how can he rule well? If the subject, how can he obey well? If he be licentious and cowardly, he will certainly not do his duty. It is evident, therefore, that both of them must have a share of virtue, but, varying as natural subjects, also vary among themselves. Here, 
the very constitution of the soul has shown us the way in it one part naturally rules and the other is subject and the virtue of the ruler we maintain to be different from that of the subject the one being the virtue of the rational and the other of the irrational part now it is obvious that the same principle applies generally and therefore almost all things rule and are ruled according to nature but the kind of rule differs the free man rules over the slave after another manner from that in which the male rules over the female or the man over the child although the parts of the soul are present in all of them they are present in different degrees for the slave has no deliberative faculty at all the woman has but it is without authority and the child has but it is immature so it must necessarily be supposed to be with the moral virtues also all should partake of them but only in such manner and degree as is required by each for the fulfillment of his duty hence the ruler ought to have moral virtue in perfection for his function taken absolutely demands a master artificer and rational principle is such an artificer the subjects on the other hand require only that measure of virtue which is proper to each of them clearly then moral virtue belongs to all of them but the temperance of a man and of a woman or the courage and justice of a man and of a woman are not as socrates maintained the same the courage of a man is shown in commanding of a woman in obeying and this holds of all other virtues as will be more clearly seen if we look at them in detail for those who say generally that virtue consists in a good disposition of the soul or in doing rightly or the like only deceive themselves far better than such definitions is their mode of speaking who like gorgias enumerate the virtues all classes must be deemed to have their special attributes as the poet says of women silence is a woman's glory but this is not equally the glory of man the child is imperfect and therefore obviously his virtue is not relative to himself alone but to the perfect man and to his teacher and in like manner the virtue of the slave is relative to a master now we determine that a slave is useful for the wants of life and therefore he will obviously require only so much virtue as will prevent him from failing in his duty through cowardice or lack of self-control someone will ask whether if what we are saying is true virtue will not be required also in the artisans for they often fail in their work through lack of self-control but is there not a great difference in the two cases for the slave shares in his master's life the artisan is less closely connected with him and only attains excellence in proportion as he becomes a slave the meaner sort of mechanic has a special and separate slavery and whereas the slave exists by nature not so the shoemaker or other artisan it is manifest then that the master ought to be the source of such excellence in the slave and not a mere possessor of the art of mastership which trains the slave in his duties wherefore they are mistaken who forbid us to converse with slaves and say that we should employ command only for slaves stand even more in need of admonition than children so much for this subject the relations of husband and wife parent and child their several virtues what in their intercourse with one another is good and what is evil and how we may pursue the good and escape the evil will have to be discussed when we speak of the different forms of government for inasmuch as every family is a part of the state 
and these relationships are the part of a family, and the virtue of the part must have regard to the virtue of the whole, women and children must be trained by education with an eye to the Constitution, if the virtues of either of them are supposed to make any difference in the virtues of the state. And they must make a difference, for the children grow up to be citizens, and half the free persons in a state are women. Of these matters enough has been said. Of what remains, let us speak at another time. Regarding, then, our present inquiry is complete, we will make a new beginning. And, first, let us examine the various theories of a perfect state. End of Book 1, Sections 10-13